Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so it's the end. Yes, Force 2 pods and what feels like a never-ending barrage of late nights later, another campaign rolls by. And we're here to dredge up the wreckage of what happened in what's going to be a strange pod in some ways, but hopefully also interesting when we get into it in terms of how we look at the season just gone. We're joined by Nick today for a short while, which we'll explain in just a bit. You right, mate? How's new baby? Hey, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. It's good to catch up in what feels like forever, actually. Um, I'm a father of two now. Baby Marina was born eight days ago. So adjusting to the new normal right now of having two kids in the house and, and trying to manage everything that's going on around me. But um, yeah, we're here to talk about uh, FPL for a change. So we are, of course, who got the assist? Tom, you can find on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL, myself at WGTA underscore Nick and Anthony at FPL Stag. Um, also on Instagram, of course, WGTA.FPL. So, Anthony, how are you doing? Evening, lads. Great to be here. And especially it's great to have you here, Nick. Congratulations on the baby and best of luck uh, with baby Marina. We wish you all the best with her. Uh, this pod is going to be looking back on the season that was, uh, as you'd expect, I guess, for a post-Game Week 38 pod. So what we're going to be doing is reviewing our own seasons. We'll give the final mini-league roundup and we'll have an announcement about WGTA next season. Uh, after the break, where we'd usually be doing correspondence and Q&A this week, we're going to be looking at some key features of the season that was and dish out our highly anticipated end-of-season awards. We won't have the gala dinner this year for the award ceremony, but hopefully we can have that big event next year in 2022. And also, 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 we're not going to be gone off the grid completely for the summer. So we have some special content coming your way and we will discuss that right at the end of this part too. Cool. Um, but one thing to mention is the 24th of July, the 24-7 event, as we are uh, calling it ever so artfully. Thanks for that one, James Linden. It's a pub meetup for this summer based in London um, in collaboration with uh, Rich and uh, James Drury at Surgery and, of course, James and Surge at Planet. Uh, Nick and I are both going uh, as well. This is on the 24th of July, 2021, so a Saturday. Um, it's at the Editor's Tap, Fetter Lane in central London from 3pm onwards. Totally free event. Um, should be really 
really, really well attended and well worth you coming along. We'll be there pretty much all day. So feel free to come drop in whenever suits your schedule. Um, you'll need to have the NHS COVID app on your phone in order to enter. Um, otherwise, James Jury will throw you out. But other than that, it should be a really, really great event. And we're really, really looking forward to that um, early summer. Right. Let's get into the season reviews then. How we all did. Do we start at the top? rather than starting at the bottom, because I feel like I've spoken for a little while. Anthony, you won our um, little cash league, didn't you? Um, absolutely smashed it in the end, but it was a difficult end game week, wasn't it? How did the whole season go? Game week 38, first of all, I suppose. I finished with 66 points minus four. I was fortunate, I guess, with one of my transfers in that I brought in Sadio Mane, who obviously got 16 points, which was rather useful because I would have had quite a poor game week if I hadn't brought him in. He came in for Son, um, and unfortunately that meant I had kept Bruno Fernandes. I had made the move before it became confirmed that he wasn't going to be playing. That's the way these things fall sometimes. And I decided to captain Bamford, who also came in as part of a hit, actually. And he obviously came off the bench and scored a penalty, which also saved my blushes, to be honest, because that could have been a disaster otherwise, even though I guess the very popular captaincy pick was Salah, and he didn't exactly pull up trees with just an assist and six points. But either way, at least he matched that particular tally and kind of just kept me swimming forward. Did give me a green arrow, not a particularly big one, which meant that my final rank ended up being 34,604 with 2,445 points. That's actually the best season I've managed since I started the FPL Stag Twitter account, which I'm not sure if it says an awful lot about what Twitter groupthink has done to my brain that it's it's taken me seven seasons to get to the point where I recovered from it because the season before I started the Stag account um, and started the new FPL account that it was on because I forgot the password to my personal account um, I'd had a 12-12.5k finish or something and that remains my best finish and this is the closest I've managed to get to it since it only took the guts of a full decade to get there <laughs> so yay how did I do it? You must have been like 12 when you started then Surely. When I playing a bit of FPL and stuff, I was pretty young, yeah. That best decade. finish, that best finish when I was like what 16, 17. Yes. Yeah. It, it took a while, guys. Uh, <laughs> anywho, how did I do it? I didn't do it because I had a good start. I had an atrocious start. My first game week had me around 300 k And that's kind of the sweet spot. Unfortunately, things started to really decline from there, and I find myself uh, in around a million rank still after about seven or eight game weeks, which is uh, frustrating. And uh, it actually took me 14 game weeks before my managed team was outpacing my game week one team. And that, that style is taken from FPL Retro, which is a really useful tool. This isn't an ad for retro, FPL Retro, but their tool is very useful for analyzing your season. And I can basically see that there's, if you have a line graph, I am just ta- basically keeping neck and neck with my game week one team right up until around game week 14. And then I start to really pull away only in the 20s. Um, so well into the new year before I really got going. Captaincy could have been better and could have been worse. I feel like captaincy is kind of what would have made this fine or good season, a really good season. I got 559 captain points. So that means I averaged 14.7 captain points per game week. And I did that, I guess, while playing it my own way and chasing halls. And so at least that's nice. And if I just had a perma cap on, let's say, the highest scoring player who turned out to be Bruno Fernandes, I would have only got 488 points. So at least I outscored that. At the same time, I do think that chasing an average of eight points per game week, which would be 16 multiplied by 38, uh, 
giving you 608 points. I think that should really be the benchmark for what you chase to have in captaincy score across the season. Most of the algorithms would tell you that uh, the highest scoring player that you'd expect in a given week would get about eight or nine points, your Salas, your Canes, whatever. And so I feel like that's kind of the number you need to be chasing because yeah, you, prob- you right, probably had, yeah. yeah, you probably had the tools within your side week by week to do that. Like my potential captain score was, of course, 1,034. But, you know, that's, if I was clairvoyant, that's the type of score yeah, I would have got. Story mode FPL, that isn't it really? Yeah, so that's not a realistic number to look at. But I think what is a realistic number to think about is just what the algorithm suggests is possible and over the course of a season is indeed possible. And I think I still did fall short of that. Some interesting other points. I nailed all my chips. It's the only time I've ever been able to say that. Uh, my first wildcard gave me an immediate boost of 40 points. My free hit gave me an, a boost of 51 points. My wild, my second wildcard gave me a boost of 20 points. And my bench boost even gave me 20 points off the bench in a low scoring week. And that was an awful lot of that came in March when I had a particularly good month compared to the FPL like, template. And that really powered me up the rankings at the time as well. I went from kind of frustrating obscurity of around kind of, let's say two to 300k to suddenly having a five figure rank and holding that for the rest of the season, really kind of getting up towards 50k and getting down, I think as low as 24k and then eventually sliding back a little bit and finishing out my 34k. And one other interesting point is that when I look at my dream team, my second best forward, so Kane is obviously my best forward, but in terms of the points that I received from my second best forward, it's Calvert-Lewin with 84 points. That means basically I points dodged all of the decent mid-priced forwards for most of the season. And chief amongst those, obviously, is Patrick Bamford, who got ever so close to the 200 club in the yeah, end of the season. Fine. And I barely owned him. So I think that tells you where there was an awful lot of points left behind by me as well. Between the captaincy, the triple captaincy and the second striker slot, you can nearly account for 100 points that would have made my season really really good um but that's not uh, but still i'm not too annoyed by it uh, 34k obviously as i say the best i've done with as fpl stag so we'll take it nicholas how did you get on uh yeah i mean you did excellently to be honest i think yeah, with, with my season it just kind of ended in a little bit of a whimper unfortunately um had such a strong start i mean looking at sort of the fpl retro sort of game week two to six apparently was, was my weakest period but after that game week seven to eleven is when i really came to just the four in terms of my season just some of the, the random picks like um Kurt Zuma goals from central defence and that sort of uh, thing yeah. was everything everything was coming up Harris sort of around that time but after that it kind of just collapsed on itself unfortunately I was up sort of 89k in game week 11 but um, finished this uh, game week with 50 points which brought me back down to um, 117k which was actually my lowest um, overall rank um, since game week 22 so a real drop in terms of performance really over the course of the last couple of game weeks and and I know a few of the things that kind of went wrong really at the end of the season is just perhaps a little bit too much patience caught up with me with certain assets not jumping on those bandwagons early enough so the likes of Gundogan was very late to that party the likes of Jesse Lingard I completely missed out on and the like even the likes of Joe Willock at the end of the season just not looking at him and then you know even the final week I was looking at Bruno Tamane but I was 0.1 million short of that move so I just left it in the end which was foolish so it didn't really work out for me obviously because Mane holds I captain Salah in the last game week thinking that you know he was going to chase the golden boots and was going to at least get a goal but unfortunately just got that assist which is rubbish and, and most of the other players sort of 
um, didn't do particularly well, such like, like Dallas obviously lost his clean sheet in the last minute, and sort of Aston Villa as well lost their clean sheet, and, and Watkins blanked. So a lot of my players in that final week didn't really do anything. So 50 points in that particular game week, which just meant overall, yeah, um, pretty disappointed with how things turned out over the course of the the season. I mean, as I said, it was a strong start, but just started just ending in a win. I think with the chips, it didn't really work out for me. Like the bench boosts trying to go for the Leeds assets in that single game week was a disaster. I had McCarthy as well. We didn't play, so I only got eight points in my bench boost, which um, was really, really poor. So I'm like, dagger. my chips kind of just blew up for me. I mean, the triple captain was looking good until Kane got that injury. So I only got that one game out of him as well. But the captains... Um, I actually scored very similar um, stags. So I got 554 points for my captains and it was just generally sort of relying on those familiar safe assets, the likes of Kane, the likes of uh, Fernandez, the likes of Salah. And it's quite interesting looking at my dream team actually, because my dream team is basically a, a list of premium assets, uh, which I must have owned at some points. For instance, like the likes of Robertson is in there. I, I barely, I had a child, obviously, so my brain's a bit fried, but I barely even remember owning Robertson this season. <laughs> apparently I did for a number of the early weeks and he did really well for me. So he's he's my second highest scoring defender after Dallas. And then um, the midfield's basically Fernandez, Salah, Son, De Bruyne, Grealish, a very premium guy. And up front is Kane and Calvert-Lewin. Calvert-Lewin getting 87 points for me. So similar to you again there, Anthony, just um, in terms of those the players that did well for me were those tried and I, I know because I said it all the time the pods trusting those tried and trusted assets or something like I said which is obviously a load of crap some of the time um, because you know going for those sort of weird picks the likes that Tom might have called out you know like Gundogan or Lingard these guys I looked at for why the hell was anyone buying these guys I know they scored one game I don't trust them to be safe picks but they ended up being excellent differentials and the same with Bamford as well completely missed out on that wagon and, and that's you know a few of those things that really kind of just caught me off guard a little bit this season I think next year if I'm looking at this season in retrospect is it's going to be about perhaps taking a few more risks even if I look at the player and think oh he's not a he's he's not a well-known goal scorer he's not a well-known assister you know not a well-known FPL player and perhaps I'll get on them a little bit earlier and say you know maybe they will do well and and that's what we saw a lot this season is those players that suddenly appeared out of the parapet having never really returned before continue to return so it's definitely a a lesson learned there. Yeah, getting on those bandwagons shamelessly is something that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, so for me, I came bottom of us all, 163k, and that's my the final game week gave me my highest rank of the season, which just showed you what a slog it was, to be honest. Um, 78 points, Captain Aguero in the end. Uh, seriously, when he scored that brace, I was like, going absolutely mental. Um, what a great way for the season to end, though. Uh, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that all day long. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, likes of him obviously returning the brace there, uh, which is still lovely. I was, I was still smiling at that. Uh, Willock, uh, Shufal uh, with uh, that assist and the clean sheet with a nice 10 pointer. So, so yeah, 78 points minus four. Decent way to end the season. Set me up to, um, yeah, a very, very respectable. No, no, no. But but the best outcome I've ever had 
since been doing WGCA of 163k. God, that is so depressing, isn't it? It really is. Um, and that's actually my like fifth best season ever since I've been playing seriously. But it's the best one since I've been a, a public entity. And so, in inverted commas, dear God, I'm, I'm not somebody who's got a massive head uh, in that regard. <laughs> but um, um WGTA limited liability company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all rights reserved. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at the dashboard, I think I had two key issues this season. One was a poor start, which I mentioned given the fact that 160k at the very end of the season is the highest my highest rank of them all the other one's poor captaincies i mean you guys 559 for you anthony 554 for you nick 484 for me like it's it's a huge achilles heel of mine the captaincy and i'm seriously considering delegating it to algorithms next term because i'm clearly no good at it this is the third year in a row where i've scored less than 500 points for a captaincy um, and it's really not been good on the other side of it, though, I took a lot of hits. Um, I took 96 points in hits this year. But my out- outcomes are more than okay. I made 214 points net gain from transfers in. So maybe they're, I mean, a late riser always says to me, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're an aggressive player who's been cowed into templation through the Twitter kind of brain melt. And maybe he's right. Like Maybe it is kind of worth me looking at that. Chips are all right. I still blame Shrewsbury for knocking out that uh, Leeds bench boost plan. But one thing which is huge is the fact that in my team of the season, Craig Dawson's in there as my third defender. He's in there with 29 points scored in my team, right? Like, genuinely, I looked at something else, like Sertalp surfing to give you a list of the players in your team, and he is legit there with 29 points only. Basically, this year, I've been playing with 10 men, uh, which is just crazy because I was unable to settle on that kind of third defender all year long. Um, I deprived myself of so many points. And if you look at Dallas, who no doubt is going to show up in the end of the season awards chat later on, it's such a huge kind of miss for what could have been. Like, have that in there, plus the captains being decent, I think I'd have done a, a whole lot better. Things to think about over the summer, as I said on my thread on Twitter the other day, why am I so bad at captains' picks? I mean, I think it might be best to delegate that, frankly, because I am really bad at it. How do I start better? As Nick kind of spoke about a second ago, um, maybe waiting for bandwagons to kind of come to fruition, like that kind of wait and assess, which we're going to speak about in just a bit. That's probably a poor idea. Maybe you should just kind of shamelessly jump on and, and pump for the best early doors. And I also may look at a bit more, a bit more of an aggressive style, which probably suits how I used to play uh, back in the day. Um, you know, so before we start WGTA, I had ranks of 2000, 12,000, 20,000. And then as soon as I started WTA, it became six figures. So there you go. Absolute bloody nightmare. Um, Anthony, Min League Roundup. I, I noticed there was an unusual name at the top and a few of the established names completely fell off the map. Yeah, it was a funny final game week of the season. And yeah, as you say, Tom, there were some of the names that we were used to seeing in the top 10 and actually dropped out in the final game week. And it's interesting because it's not because of captaincy picks. It's more just because of differential transfers more than anything. Absolutely everybody actually in the top 10 captain Salah. Uh, In the end, 10th was Etsy lover James Harding with 2,570 points. He got 71 points in the final game week of the season to uh, secure that position. Lucy Hynett, a former guest, obviously, and friend of the show with her team, Shade Dream Believers, uh, finished in ninth with 2,577 points. She had 59 points and a red hour in the league in the final week of the season, but just enough to hang on there in the top 10. Uh, Chaos Ball Sean Dunlop's team with 2,578 points finished in eighth. Then we had Nicola Chanterevi with, with his team. The, he got 55 points in the final game of the season, 2,579 points. So just one point ahead of Sean Dunlop. 
up actually to sixth from uh, further down the league is David Izat with his team Hestwam on Tide. He's obviously been in around the top 10 for an awful lot of the season. You'll remember him from quite a few uh, mini league roundups throughout the year. So fair play to him for holding that consistency all the way through and securing that top 10k finish in the end with 2,582 points. Tim Franson, who's been up at the very top of the league for weeks upon weeks upon weeks, actually ended up in fifth with 2,585 points. So unfortunate for him and his team for Sammy, but still an unbelievable season. Uh, Ryan Hobbs, who with his team Hobbsy's Heroes, he has been in and around the top 10k all year as well. He stayed in fourth after being in fourth after game week 37 as well, uh, coming into the final week of the season. So he has 2,585 points uh, in his final tally. Harry Jones is in third. He went up in the final game week thanks to 72 points. His team Neville Wears Prada ended up with 2,586 points. Hazik Zahin's team held second with the team named Biowak Sirit. He got 2,590 points, 63 points in the final game week of the season. Not a huge score, but enough for him to consolidate his position. And finishing in first was Jamie Timothy with his team Asselexia. He had 2,000 592 points with 69 points of those coming in the final game week of the season. His side ended up finishing 186th overall in the world. So that's a very, very, very good result for Jamie and congratulations to him. That's an unbelievable result for him. Absolutely smashed it. Excellent. Well done to everybody in the top 10. I'm very, very jealous of those finishes. So to end this section, we've got a quick announcement to make. I'm sure you might have some idea of what this will be, but basically, no, it's not the pod is ending, nothing like that, but almost fittingly in the spot where market forces normally would be. Unfortunately, one of us won't be here as often next year, will we, Nick? No, that's correct. So, yeah, obviously a few people have noticed I've not been around as much this season, just in general, real life's been getting in the way and I've just not really had the time to dedicate to FPL as much as I would like to. And obviously things have changed again for me in the last couple of weeks with my family increasing in size by another new member, as well as obviously trying to look after my son. And just generally I've got you know multiple challenges going on with my work as well, uh, which is quite demanding, having to work quite late into the evening meaning that my, my free time ultimately has just become something of a, a premium very unfortunately and yeah for these reasons I'm, I'm stepping down unfortunately this year uh, for the next year uh, we'll see um what the you know the future holds whether I come back and reassess the, the following year or even if I come and do some guest appearances here and there but I'm not going to unfortunately have the time to, to commit uh, to the pods on a, on a week in week out basis next season but yeah I mean it all started didn't it Tom in a, in a London flat and it's it's been a fun ride for the past four years uh, you know working on this pod and talking to and make, meeting some fantastic people within the community and, and so much has changed in that time so when we first started I, I wasn't married I didn't own a house and didn't have two children and, uh, and now I have all of those things which has changed everything um, in my world so you know I'll, I'll still be around the season as I said and my dear always open on Twitter as well if anyone wants to message me but yeah um, um, unfortunately I won't be doing the pod week in week out next season oh, I mean, I'll certainly miss podding with you the way you're able to handle any dodgy curveball I throw at you the way you're never able to sit still <laughs> I just can't believe, as you said, we started this uh, on my kitchen table getting on for, you know, five years ago now. And I've literally got the same thing here, you know, but we're back in my flat. You were living in your flat, no kids, no house. 
I had no living girlfriend at the time and something, you know, you look back and now you've got two kids in a house. I've got a house and hopefully kids on the way soon. And you can see the pod kind of grew with us. And maybe there's an element of the fact that you've sort of outgrown it, at least for a little bit. And we obviously wish you every happiness. Not that I won't speak to you most days, but I've kind of, I've had a sneaky bet on the preseason. You get the itch, you know, and we were saying before you come on that maybe there'll be a Paul Scholes moment where you'll log on for the preseason pod and be like, what? <laughs> why, am I, why shouldn't I be here? And we'll be like, oh, okay, well, fair enough. Um, so you mentioned obviously meeting a few kind of people throughout your time uh, during uh, being on WGTA. And we did hear from a few individuals who you, you've gotten to know very, very well um, throughout the last kind of few years. Um, asked a few kind of people whose names you'll recognise, Nick, to give us some well wishes, what they'll miss about you and kind of what they valued about your input. And some of it is really interesting, isn't it, Anthony? Yeah, absolutely. The minute you put this out to uh, a few friends of the pod, it was, it was interesting that a theme very quickly emerged. <laughs> and that goes back to, I guess, okay. the roots of who got the assist with uh, the dynamic between yourself, Nick, and Tom. And uh, we had Jeremy, Adam Pritchard, uh, James Carrollt, etc., all coming in and saying how great it was to have the sensible counterbalance to Tom. Uh, in uh, FPL commentary when it came to just, you know, Tom would be talking about all sorts of crazy ideas and transfers and then it would come to you and you just have a, a very reasoned re- uh, decision about why you were just moving one defender to another defender to just make sure you got as many points as you could in the next few game weeks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jeremy said um, he always loved how Nick reined me in with his sensible approach. And it performed the perfect counterbalance. Um, and Amputor Adam Pritchard, he said, you know, it was a counterbalance. He says, Nick always changed my own thinking and he managed to present his points in a persuasive way, but crucially without ever veering into evangelism or dogma. It seems now that those people you know, plant their flag on a player or strategy, um, but he was able to kind of put his point across respectfully. And that's increasingly lost art. And that's something Nick was very, very good at. He also said he enjoyed how much everything's coming up. Harris managed to grate on me so much, <laughs> which is definitely true. Um, uh, elsewhere, James Kroll, as we spoke, spoke about earlier, said, it's tough to narrow down just one thing. <laughs> and uh, our friend Sean said, it's tough was definitely part of WGTA drinking game. Uh, but, you know, James said, um, you know, Nick's one of those people in the community that no one could possibly have a bad word to say about whose presence would be greatly missed. The N'Golo Kante of the podcasting world, uh, one of the most approachable pe- people as well he's ever met in the meetups. And uh, Mitchell also mentioned that about um, you know the Kante sort of thing. He said it sounds sort of damning with faint praise if to compare you to like Kante or you know a Dunga or something, but it definitely isn't. He says there's a reason why most records by the Smiths, the Beatles, New Order, the Rolling Stones, and so on. Um, are more about the kind of the sum of their parts rather than the individuals. And finally, and Anthony, I'll pass on to you in just a second. Uh, Neil Gupta said, uh, you know, we'll miss you a lot. Your considered style is often the ideal counterbalance to Tom's more punchy playing style and stag's more differential approach. Neil says much of his kind of FOMO stems from listening to Nick give very well-balanced views on why players should be owned. Um, so yeah, he, he really respects you and uh, we'll miss you a lot on the podcast. Chris Awesome also kind of uh, touched on that same theme where he talked about that relationship between uh, yourself, Nick and Tom, which he felt made WGTA the FPL institution that it is today. So he compares the two you guys to Holmes and Watson, Pell and Teller, House and Wilson, that you had the eccentric risk taker and Tom balanced out by that calm pragmatism of Nick and how much to Tom's annoyance, no matter how elaborate his minus eight schemes were to come, everything would always come up Harris. Chris also actually touches on, and this is something that quite a few people remember fondly, dad watch 
uh, as a segment being a complete highlight for them that just following Ian's team as it uh, surged uh, in that season when Dadwatch uh, became such a segment on the show was a real thrill for them. Uh, also, Chris mentions uh, market forces and seeing how many were jumping on a Stephen Ward bandwagon, something he remembers fondly. There's quite a few um, kind of comments about Dadwatch, which is really, really interesting um, and can make sense. Uh, there's another thing as well, Nick, which you're probably not going to be remembering very fondly. How can we forget, oh, yeah. they said, when members of the FL community were salivating over Mrs. Harris's voice, saying, oh, it's a goal, <laughs> who got the assist, who got the assist? Um uh, Alan, just for you can do, Zan, says he took it in his stride that so many commented on his wife's voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my wife will still be on the pod, so she, she will be the, the longest serving member. We'll have done the most pods by the end of this. Um, so, yeah, no, thanks, guys. There's some really kind messages there. Yeah, no, I really appreciate all the feedback. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad to say goodbye, but as I said earlier, it might not be forever. Might come back <laughs> early next season or in the summer and get that pre-season itch, as I said, you know. Uh, if and when you do come back, actually, Sai, we will definitely enjoy you saying, we're back. He said the emphasis that you always put on the words, we're back, was always entertaining for him. <laughs> A lot of these things actually just become in-jokes and memes between me and Tom, so like the it's tough and... Uh, I think it started with like the first 10 or so pods me saying we're back quite aggressively and then we just decided to make it a running joke where like I just say it more and more loudly every time and and if I don't have anything to say it's like it's like your looks Anthony I just say oh it's it's tough but um, you know <laughs> trying to buy time. Cool. Well Nick we'll miss you um, and no doubt you'll be back at some points next year it's not goodbye it's just a revoir uh, for the time being and um, yeah thank you very much for all of the time you spent with me oh voluntarily i'm not really sure why you did it but there you go and i'm sure anthony feels the same for the the short period that we've all all three of us been together but it has been brilliant and i'm sure you'll kind of think pre-season oh god i better get back on (laughs) (laughs) anyway enjoy your time off no that will be we will be in touch and i'm sure if anyone does want to get in touch with you um they will yeah thanks guys catch you all later who got the assist who got the assist Right, so we're back, and it's just myself and Tom now to discuss the season that was. We're going to chat about things we noticed this season, kind of what happened, and maybe the anatomy of the season. And I think one thing that might stick out to anyone if they look at their overall rank and the number of points they got, and compare that to previous years, you might find that this was a really high-scoring year for FPL managers. And it's kind of hard to see at first phase why it was so high scoring like if you look at goals per game there's no real difference if you look at clean sheets per game as well there's no real difference and so it's something you need to kind of consider more deeply to do that now i could not work it out for the life of me but my co-host could so tom has that particular thing explored for you yeah i mean it's certainly a fascinating one to dig into like i I don't know as i said if this is the truth for everybody. But I've seen so many people saying, you know, this is probably one of my better points totals, but still it's not the rank I wanted. Like I was just gobsmacked, frankly, and I looked at my data that my points total this year to get me 163k was better than the one that got me 2.5k uh, back in 2015-16. And it got me wondering, Amphrey, you know, I'm one of these sad people who's got spreadsheets for the last five years. So I kind of thought, all right, how many points have been scored over the last five years by FPL assets? And this year especially has come out on top um, by a fair bit. So there's 300 more points scored this year than last year. In fact, it's almost 350 more. Uh, same this year versus 18-19. 
kind of similar actually to 1718. Only 10 more points were scored this year than that year. 200 to 400 more points were scored this year versus 16 to 17. What's really interesting as well is at the top, in terms of the top 20, um, this year, the top 20's average points and overall points was actually lower than uh, previous years. So this year, the top 20 scored 3,628 points. Year before, 3836. Year before that, 3893. Year before that, 3755. Year before that, 3851. It's the lowest average as well um, of the last five years. So basically what's happened is there's been more points scored but the top 20 scored less points, which is obviously a bit strange. Like, if you imagine distribution chart, this year is far flatter than previous years, but there's more volume in it, if that makes sense. Which led me to a hypothesis um, that there are more players scoring over a certain threshold this season versus other seasons, despite the top being quite constricted. So the next thing I did, because again, I'm quite sad and I've got my spreadsheet, so I thought I'd have a look at it, was look at a threshold and how many people actually made it over that threshold. I didn't have bags of time. I'm not very imaginative. So I kind of had a look into how many players made over 100 points. But this year, 118 players made it over 100 points. And that is actually the most um, that we've seen for the last seven years, um, but certainly over the last five. And um, this year, there have been 118. Uh, last year, 110. The year before that, 98. 110, 108. Overall, there's an average over the last four years of 106, 107 players making over 100. This year, it's 118. So you had 11% more players in the 100 cohort, uh, which probably explains why there are a few more points kind of floating around. And the other thing, and the final thing that I looked at was double digit involvements by players this year. And this year, there were seven players, despite the fact that the 200 club only comprised four players. This year, there were seven players with double digits in terms of goals and assists, um, which I found really interesting because I thought, you know what? There's only been four players in 200 club. It's been a low scoring year. No, that's entirely untrue. This year has been a very high scoring year. It's been the highest scoring year in the last five years. Kane, Bruno, Vardy, Bamford, Mane and Rashford have all scored double digits this year. Last year it was only five, year before that was only five, year before that was only five, and year before that was only four. So all of this basically means that this year there were loads of points on offer in FPL. There were more points scored, as I mentioned, overall this year by FPL assets. And as there was a higher than usual pool of points to be fished from, as it were, um, throughout this year, that's why if you look at the points that you have scored versus your rank, there could be a slight disparity if you look at the past. Um, so that's kind of one part of the puzzle, which is clear. I guess why managers score more points than Anthony is something worth discussing. Like, because obviously the, the points are on offer, but you need to own the players and also hit those points. Like, I, I kind of feel like there was like a critical mass that players reached, right? Yeah, I think that's completely true. And part of that, I think, is just the reason for how the season started and maybe then how it developed from there for FPL managers. And you could think of this in two ways. You could look at this from the perspective of FPL managers who were quite inactive. So just the amount of points that inactive teams picked up just because of the way they might have set up their team, let's say, come the end of game week five and then abandon ship. But also you could look at it from the perspective of who had got into a good position that was an active manager by about game week five, by yeah. making some transfers, um, shrewdly getting players in, who then held form all the way through the season. So I think the classic, classic example of this is Kane and Son. 
two members of the four-person 200 club who fired into form and especially in Son's case, picked up a huge amount of points in those early weeks of the season. If you had both of those in your squad early on, they fired your rank really high. And from there, you probably wouldn't have sold them but they would have kept your rank high and you would have then been able to make all of the obvious transfers to hold your rank that would have helped you kind of, if you get me, you almost started from a higher base in that sense because you had these points built up by game week five, game week 10, that it was so hard for those who never didn't have them early on, I've pointed myself with this, to catch up to those people from there. And I guess what is interesting too, though, is that we're talking about saying that those players should have been in your side and they would have helped you go up. But one thing that people who are listening to this pod all the way through the season will remember is that in the early weeks of the season, our market forces were almost bipolar in the sense that Son was in, most transferred in, and then Son was the most transfer out. And there was talk one point at one point by Mourinho that he was going to be uh, that Son was injured and was going to miss a game week, and Son came in and got a double digit haul and was one of the best players of the game week. And so people who had those players early and didn't move them on or saw that Spurs played poorly against Everton and decided to get rid of their Spurs assets or decided to maybe divest and have just just Kane or just Son, missed out on an awful lot of points there. Whereas there were some people who, just, as I say, built up that critical mass of points and were able to surge on from there. Yeah, I think that you know people just getting on early uh, to like so Son and Kane um, just meant that more people had sustained interest than ever before. Throw that into the fact that obviously we were, you know, all inside, um, you know, we were more engaged than ever before with FPL because frankly, there wasn't real life to engage with because we were all locked indoors. I think that kind of meant that people were either more engaged with FPL or at least more engaged with their socials than ever before when it came to FPL. And I mean, this links as well into the bandwagon sort of scenario that we've seen this year. Because, I mean, we've said a few times, we've characterised this as FPL Wolfsmoes, you snooze, you lose. And that's been a huge part of this season for that shenanigans, even from the off with, uh, you know, uh, Kane and Son, and also Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, so, you know, uh, if you look at this season's um, uh, bandwagons, they read pretty much as such, and there are probably a few that I've missed. Um, but Dominic Calvert-Lewin from games 1 to 14, Son and Kane from 2 to 12, obviously they lost that first game, uh, Spurs, and everyone kind of started selling, and hence that kind of Son sort of switcheroo that we saw. Uh, Bamford early doors, 1 to 8. Ruben Diaz, uh, between game weeks 10 and 22, became an absolute machine. Um, as did Tommy Suchek, he could not stop scoring for quite a while. John Stones with a double game with Heroics, uh, game weeks 18 to 28. Gundawan, uh, when Kevin De Bruyne got injured between 19 and 24, just became an absolute rock. Uh, Antonio, 19 to 26, couldn't stop scoring. And neither could Jesse Lingard between game weeks 25 and 32. And also Joseph Willock. Wow, what a player. Uh, game week 32 to the end. Just went on, a, on an unfathomable streak. I think the fact is, though, that that casual purchase angle that I've mentioned a few times on this podcast um, and long-term listeners will remember this. I, I just kind of think that people, if there were more people involved, what they'd have done is they looked at, you know, they got transfer to make, they'll look at who scored the most points over the last couple of weeks. So they'll kind of sort by form or whatever. They'll look at who everyone's buying. So transfers in and just, and just say, okay, that'll do. Um, and that, we really contrast to people like us who've got that kind of you know old school mantra of, watch the player, assess his performance, and then bring him in. There are those people who didn't have that preconception this year. They just thought, you know what? This guy started scoring goals. I'm going to buy him. And that, I think, had a huge impact on things, as well as 
basically homework copying is my final point here in my work mini league as well as a especially there was a veritable army of people who I'd never seen before whose teams were oddly identical to the likes of FPL generals or Andy let's talk FPLs and they so again more time equals you know more time to invest equals a higher sense of engagement but what do you think about bandwagons Anthony and what can we make of this uh, going into next year so I think first of all what I might do is just toss a few more smaller bandwagons in that are maybe worth discussing not necessarily ones that might have been the sexiest bandwagons that attracted a huge amount of attention, but they were still ones that let's say attracted an awful lot of points. Early weeks of James Justin, uh, up until really he got his Achilles injury, James Justin was part of the template and continued to churn up oh, points. Yeah, no, he was. <laughs> I, I've scrubbed him from my, from my thinking. Like literally, I've got no note of him in today's notes, and yeah, that's, that's and ridiculous. Actually, but I didn't. I that, well, completely went over my head that one. But yeah, a great shout. There was also uh, there were kind of the the three eras of Chelsea. There was the everything's coming up Harris Zuma era. There was the Chilwell era. And then there was the Rudiger era. And at different points, the Chelsea defence was a goldmine for points. You just had to have figured out which part of the Chelsea defence is the one that you need to go for. So Adam Pritchard actually noted that on the pod a few weeks back. And I think he's so right in saying that, that if you managed to nail your Chelsea defence, and there were points where you could have doubled up to with Mendy, for example, you could really, really have done well. Jack Grealish was one of the most popular players in FPL right up until the point that he got injured and Dean Smith started saying he was coming back in a week, every week, and he didn't come back until basically the very end of the season. He was like by far and away the highest uh, chance creator in those early weeks. He was pretty much essential. I think we all thought that we were going to be keeping him for the rest of the year. Uh, you mentioned Diaz in the bandwagons, but you could honestly point to Cancelo. You mentioned Stones as well, but you could point to Cancelo. You yeah, could even yeah. point to Ederson. Just that, that City defence just continued to churn points week in, week out. And all of those players, Cancelo, Stones and Diaz, all had massive game weeks. Cancelo had the 17. Stones obviously had the big double game week and another kind of 14 or something points. And Diaz had like a 17-pointer as well. Stuart Dallas, the bandwagon that never stopped wagoning <laughs> basically one game weeks one to 38 <laughs> you should have played him because the fact yeah. of the matter was with Dallas is that it wasn't necessarily the week that you thought you should play him was the week that he scored for example the brace against Man City is the classic example of that but I owned him from game weeks one straight through to 33 and I think I got about half his holes and missed about half his holes which kind of tells you just how difficult it was to own him uh, some of the Le- Leeds guys Rafinha Harrison who found points all the way through the season, but it seems like we all only noticed in about game week 36. Uh, Kletchi Hinacho, you didn't mention, Tom, is definitely one that was a massive bandwagon right at the end. Like this unexpected out of nowhere. Finally, Kletchi Hinacho kind of fulfills the talent that we knew he always had when he left City. And we'll probably be in most of our game week one teams next season, obviously, uh, given obviously that Leicester have the right fixtures going their way. And also the West Bromwich Albion Pereira, uh, had a period where he was just flying along and if you had him in your side you did really well and it was a time when you didn't think that West Brom players were the ones to own uh, but he was there churning away points just seemingly out of nowhere and it was really interesting to kind of see sometimes how these bandwagons that weren't necessarily the sexiest ones or the most obvious ones were the ones that did so well I think Gundogan actually epitomizes that who would have thought that in our end of, end of season review pod, we would be discussing the high time when 
Gundogan, Ilkay Gundogan was players, yeah. the player to have an FPL. There was a time where you and I both, Tom, had about 90 million spent on our team and about like 10, 15 yeah, million yeah. in the bank. Rolling in the bank, rolling in money, weren't we? At one point. Yeah, because because players like Gundogan, who were cheap, Suchek is another, obviously, which just meant that you just didn't need to have uh, some of those elite players. And I like we'll get to disappointments of the season later in the end of season awards. And that's, you know, largely because some of those City players that you would have expected to be firing, Aguero, KDB, Sterling, etc., weren't firing. Yeah, no, certainly. It's definitely a bit of an odd season. I guess in some ways I look back on it and I think that it was almost a bit of a perfect storm for less engaged players, which is obviously perfect for the COVID context when you had all these, all these kind of guys and girls and other people, of course, sat at home just kind of thinking, you know what, you know, I'm going to get involved with my FPL this year because it was a high scoring season. I mean, the fact is that that is uncontrollable worth for managers, how many points the players put in via their actual real-world performances. But layer that in with bandwagons, plus less experienced players on the case. And it created you know, a unique conditionality for a kind of strange, high-scoring year. Many people said it was really, really hard, but I think it was hard because of the context rather than because of how the season itself went. You know, there are so many players, you know, like Will Thomas, for example, the FFH head honcho, who had an amazing kind of comeback here, the likes of, you know, Andy, let's talk FPL, like so FPL general. Like it's it's always relative whether the year was hard or it wasn't. I think it is genuinely the context of the year which did make it hard. Um, but I think, you know, looking forward, it'll be really interesting to see how this kind of feeds into next year, if indeed it will in any way, shape, or form. Like, can we cleave apart the fact that FPL players scored highly this year? versus the fact that real-life players created the conditions for there being more points on offer. I think it's almost amazing that they both occurred concurrently, Anthony. I mean, do you think next year it will revert to the mean there'll be less points scored next year? or Like, surely it, it can't keep continuing kind of racking upwards, as I kind of mentioned earlier on. I think the fact that we saw the number of goals per game stay relatively stagnant and the number of clean sheets per game stay relatively stagnant, and even the fact that we didn't necessarily have talismanic top players leading the way as much as we would usually expect them to. Just meant that we had a slightly odd confluence of events, as you say, Tom, that led to this season being this way. There's nothing to say that it couldn't happen again. I just feel like it's been more typical for us to see seasons where you can you can make all your way back up the ranks by mm. n- not necessarily just jumping onto the template you can bet against the house and succeed and whilst of course if you were to get your computer model out there was a way to bet against the house and beat the house every single week this year no way (laughs) yeah it's it's it was the sort of it was often the type of move that you would have thought was far too risky before the game week that would have led you to be able to beat the house and you know hats off to those that actually did manage to rise up the ranks like look at the end of the day i did manage to go from one million odd in nearly i think it was about game week 10 and i managed to finish with a top 50k rank yeah grand and a lot of people would have had stories like that or better ones where they got to the near enough that or even into the top 10k because let's say a few captains went their way that's basically the difference in it i think overall we can't really draw huge conclusions from how bandwagons manifested this season, how certain combinations of players were in vogue for a short period and then fell away again. Like I think the COVID context with the way squads, uh, some squads had injury problems feeds into it. Just yeah, the fixture absolutely. list and the way things went 
feeds into it. Like the fact that Spurs had a good start was helped by the fact that they had a good fixture uh, list to start. And just coupled with the fact that Kane and Son, especially Son, hit form like you'd never seen from them before, meant that they just powered on. Leeds as well coming through. And I think that's actually an interesting one for FPL managers. Leeds were a team full of cheap enablers that meant that, you know, everyone could get like, a good, a good defender or actually the top scoring defender of the game in Dallas a good midfielder in Harrison or Rafinha at different points in the year or even in the early weeks it was like the likes of Click and also obviously Bamford up front there was so many points to get in your kind of mid to low priced players that you wouldn't necessarily expect to have like of course we've seen the likes of Fraser and Wilson in the past but I feel like there was a little bit more of that in this season that said I do think that if game week three comes and I have a bad rank next season, I might panic and rush to the template with an early wild card just to try and make sure that I don't get caught like I did this year, you know, jamming my head in the sand like an ostrich saying that no, Son is a rat, like Son is just overperforming his XG and it can't possibly happen. There's an interesting uh, feature on live FPL actually at the moment, which allows you to download a spreadsheet of your season review. Again, not an ad, just a really useful piece of a, an analytical tool. San um, was the player that hurt me the most in FPL this year. So in terms of my total loss of points versus the top 10K, Tom, how many points, I haven't shown Tom this in advance, do you think that San hit me for versus the top 10K? And now keep in mind that I was off the top 10K, I think by like 45 uh, or 48 uh, points in the end. Well, I guess I'm 30, 40? 112.5773 Tom because I didn't own him for all of yeah, those yeah. first like 8 and 10 game weeks Bamford also was the second one I only <laughs> ever owned Bamford right at the end and I think yeah, I had him in my free yeah, hit as well he hit me for 69.73 points I thought that, like, was, that, was, I thought that was the Irish thing incredible no no it just it wasn't it was just more I actually I remember I put him into one of my pre-game week one drafts and people were like, Paddy Bamford, mate, you can't possibly put yeah, him into yeah. your team. He's, he's, he's a washout. He's good <laughs> in the championship, but he'll never do it in the Prem, mate. And I, I kind of bought into it. We'll definitely pick that up in the, in the kind of the striker of the year next, uh, later on, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I completely, I completely get that. And I think the other thing as well, just to, just to mention, I mean, he's obviously just popped off now. <laughs> Uh, but Nikov did mention that Son um, was due his 200 point year and I was also hurt to a fairly large uh, large extent by not owning Son just because I sold him in game week I didn't own him for the first four game weeks bought him in game week five sold him on my game week nine wild card and then um, there were points during the season where I owned him points during the season where I didn't and a lot of the time I, when I didn't own him he was often returning I think he hit me for 85 points as well I think I owned him a slightly bit more than you did but yeah absolutely you, you really fun. you really points dodged him there to be honest though Tom oh. to miss <laughs> ridiculous yeah. Um, the, the only other thing this this year that I kind of did notice, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, I definitely feel the three five two a little bit. And the FPL retro thing um, that I looked at showed that my average points for three five two were just ridiculous. I, I was averaging sixty eight points per game week compared to fifty seven points per game week for a three four three, and you know for other other kind of setups. Well, the base size was too low. And I mentioned earlier on as well that you know there were quite a few points going on this year, and there are quite a few players going on this year, uh, and I've, it kind of made me think about big at the back. And could three five two be the second coming at big at the back? You know, big in the middle, uh, a bit like many of us during lockdown, eh? <laughs> but you know, the ideal three five two to me could look like this for the season just gone. Martinez, Robertson, Robertson actually beat Trent by one point. Uh, Diaz, Dallas. 
in defence. Uh, Salah, Bruno, Son, KDB, Grealish, and Kane and Bamba. 3-5-2. Absolutely brilliant. And as I mentioned before, I'm really sad. So I'm somebody who's got FPL days from the last five years on record. So I spent a good 30 minutes of my evening spooling back through this data to see if there's any trend toward midfielders scoring more points. In short, yes and no. So this year was actually the highest scoring year for goalkeepers, oddly, over the last five years, and the highest scoring year for defenders over the last five years. Um, but midfielders haven't scored as highly as they have this year since 2016-17, when Alexis Sanchez, Deli Ali, and Eden Hazard were the top three scoring players. Um, there have been 500 more points in midfield this year compared to last year, for example, and about 400 points on the kind of a couple of years before. Um, but What's really interesting is that this has filled a huge gap, and that gap has been predictably in the forwards. So there's been a serious, serious downturn in the fortunes of forwards. They're almost 500 points down on last year's forward numbers. So over the last four years as well, they've averaged 4,900 points overall, like all the forwards in FPL. This year, they've only managed 4-5-3-1. So that position, as we've noticed quite a few times, has been really, really fallow, which is why Bamford and uh, Kane have been the two standouts. Now, will that stay? I'm reminded a little bit of Big at the back. Um, both got on board with that, me and Nick, after a strong defensive year in 2017. Uh, but it conspired to not quite work out, which is a bit of a misfortune, basically, because Alison wasn't around. I remember um, Neil Murray on the preseason pod predicting that that would be the first year uh, that someone was going to get a 4-4-2 or 3-5-2 most of the year, but not quite. However, you know, this year, is, it's been a really fascinating one where you've got the highest scoring year for defence over the last four years, the, the highest scoring year for goalkeepers the last five years, the worst ever year for strikers over the last five years, and midfielders the second highest scoring. Obviously, it's in the context of this being a ridiculously high scoring year in general, Anthony. I've been burnt by the big at the back debacle. I'm kind of less likely to kind of be subscribing to a, a new norm, but... Could there be something in that? Because there are so many midfield options, aren't there? Could there be some learning to take into next year? It is is really interesting, Tom, because you kind of talk about this season as statistically being the highest scoring season for defence. And yet I don't think any of us would have felt that way about defences this year from an FPL perspective. I think it's just that defensive points have been more spread out across the board. That idea that you were saying that there were so many more players that had joined the 100 club this year compared to other seasons, I think it's played out definitely in defence, where an awful lot of kind of, let's say, lower ranked defenders would have got over the 100 points, but wouldn't necessarily have got into that 150-point bracket. I, As I said earlier on, like my third defender in my team the whole season, 38 game weeks worth, only scored 29 points. Yes, it was a high-scoring year for defenders. For yeah, me, and I, I dodged you at Dallas, but I'm sure yes. for most people that's not going to be the same case. Yeah, exactly. Like mine, mine were all pretty much in and around ninety to one hundred. Um, Dallas DS and I think it was Cancelo. I think between them, they all had about hundred in my uh, team for that on FPL Retro. But the reason why, let's say, it was a high-scoring season for defenses, apart from the fact that. We were just talking about how you know the points are being more spread out across defences. It's just the fact that it wasn't as concentrated in terms of defensive points as well. So Liverpool, for example, did not get the clean sheets that you would have expected. Uh, the facts and the oddness of Chelsea's season meant that they were actually one of the best teams in terms of like defensive 
like returns this year and that they had 18 clean sheets. It just so happens that there was effectively two different back lines got about half of that each this year. So yeah. it meant that for FPL players, it didn't actually result in points. Uh, and then there was Aston Villa as well, which was kind of, okay, yeah, they did so well and we all got the Martinez points, but not that many people managed to get all the points twice over in the Aston Villa defence in a way that you would usually double up on City if they're going well, and they, people did, but often only managed to get one of the points because somebody was rotated. Did you have Diaz and Stones and one got benched and the other did well? Happened to all of us. Did you have Cancelo and Stones and one got benched and the other played well? Yeah, happened to all of us. And it just continued to happen that never did the defensive points truly concentrate. And so in that sense, it did mean that the midfield was the way to go this year. But I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case next year. I do think as well, we'll just see some player, you know, as per usual, we'll see some player positions change that will mean that the midfield might not necessarily be as attractive next year. I think they need to address the fact that forwards in general are just becoming a less relevant concept in FPL. This idea that you could have Kane plus and other plus Bamford is a bit disappointing, I think, from if you were an FPL uh, administrator's perspective, I think you'd be trying to make there be a little, a few more difficult choices to be made up there. And whilst, okay, the likes of Watford, uh, Watkins and Antonio had their day, by and large, it was a relatively easy, easy decision across that this year. If Aguero was firing, that wouldn't have been the case. If Cavani was constantly firing, that wouldn't have been the case. If Werner was able to yeah, meet his, the, 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 meet the expectations, yeah. yeah, that's actually the giant hole in you know the okay. your 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 administ- your FPL administrator who did some forecasts <laughs> would have thought that Werner was going to be providing this difficult choice and wasn't. Hinacho uh, ended up becoming the you know second slash third striker that everyone wanted, but Vardy wasn't providing the points at all to make the decision a difficult one for FPL managers. The last three years, um, 2019-20, um, striker points were at the five thousand points mark, and that was kind of it was it was stable. Whereas this year, we've just seen a huge huge drop off um, to the five four five three eight that end up at and um, there's those players as well Werner Vardy and Vardy still did okay losing Aguero was one thing and the other thing I point to is losing Aubameyang and losing Rashford so this year and Greenwood too actually this year none of those players did especially well and we'll get on to that in a little bit I'm sure in the flop of the season <laughs> but um Losing those players still was tantamount to 300 points which were lost from the forward slots and those players were not replenished despite the best efforts of the likes of Bamford and so I think maybe there was some sort of you know you can probably point to it and be like oh actually that means the forwards are becoming a bit of a less relevant concept but you could point to it and say actually players were moved out of that position which and the players who were still there weren't quite able to fill that sort of gap with a few kind of you know established names reassigned to the midfield slot that could perhaps be why things kind of went down as they did and um, being you know, it, it's genuinely really interesting and definitely something that we'll, I guess we'll kind of think about a little bit more over the summer yeah so that was the season review of 2020-2021 one of the most bizarre seasons in terms of all-field stories between the Super League all the fan drama obviously empty stadiums uh, all of the general consternation with COVID tests, uh, injuries, the, especially at Liverpool, all of the different challenges that we faced throughout this year, which made it unique, certainly memorable, Very unique, <laughs> um, perhaps forgettable for Spurs and Arsenal fans in particular. And 
just in general, an interesting season that has been very nice to share with you, Tom. So thanks very much for uh, sharing this FPL season. We'll come back to the uh, end of season awards after this break. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's time to look at our fated end of season awards. Uh, so this is where we, for each position and for a couple of sort of esoteric things, uh, discuss a few candidates and have put forward a final nominee between the two of us. Let's start with goalkeeper of the year. This is a tough, really, tough really... contest. I, I just, I can't figure out who I could yeah, possibly pick for goalkeeper of the year. Um I'll venture a guess, Anthony. I'm going to venture Emmy Martinez. Yeah, I'd have loved to say Lamelia, just you know, just to say his name again. But no, it's got to be Emmy Martinez. I don't know how it'll be possible to pick anyone else. Really. Yeah, absolutely not. Like, 100, 186 points, uh, 4.5 million. Um, that is the highest goal scoring goalkeeper pretty much ever. Um, so last year, Pope 170. Year before that, Allison 176. The, David De Gea, 172 in the 17-18 season. So I always thought that he was basically the highest scoring goalkeeper basically of all time before this. But no, Alisson actually scored him two, outscored him two years ago and he turned in 16-17. Um, Nick actually said just now that he was really disappointed on De- on Martinez. He said that, you know, if he'd have gotten one more haul, he could have broken the 200-point mark. Um, but, you know, you know, there's so much to be proud of for Martinez. He finished seventh overall with more points than the likes of Trent and Robertson and also Calvert-Lewin and Sterling. The huge thing to know about Martinez is that we've not had a goalkeeper finish in the top 10 in the last five years. So he finished seventh and the best since then has been David De Gea, who finished 14th in 17-18. Other than that, Pope last year, 15th. Allison in 18-19 finished 16th. And Heaton in 15-16 finished 24th. So yeah, a massive year for Emmy Martinez and an easy, easy 5.5 million this year, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, he may not necessarily merit that from the perspective of the team that he's playing for, but we've seen the likes of Nick Pope come in at 5.5 after good seasons. And there is nothing to suggest that Martinez wouldn't necessarily hit that price as well. I think it's it's pretty much cast iron, I would say, that he'll be 5.5 and that the likes of Melier, who had decent seasons, who caught you know, double digits for clean sheets, will be 5 million options. And as per usual, it'll be very difficult to find our 4.5 goalkeeper option. And then as per usual, one will magically appear and we will all have them in our side probably come game week one. Do you think that uh, Mr. Sanchez at, uh, at Brighton could be that man? Like, I've got a sneaky suspicion he'll be the one that I'll be looking at uh, come game week one. I suspect the guy that can do what Sergio Ramos can't do and get in the Spain squad for Euro 2020 will probably be <laughs> 5.0, to be honest. I know he's going to be the, probably the third choice goalkeeper for that Spain team, but no, I, well, I, decide, I, I do I think that I can't see them be. giving him that, though. Like, I just I feel like um, you know, Bryson finishing so lowly and him only coming in half through the season, I feel like he's going to get the 4.5, I'm hoping at least. He got 10 clean sheets. And he barely, you know, he missed quite a few games at the start of the season as well, where he wasn't their first choice keeper. Uh, I kind of think that any goalkeeper who got 10 clean sheets plus, especially one who could have got more if they'd played that little bit more, is likely to end up being at least 5.0 uh, as an option. Like there aren't that many goalkeepers that ended up with uh, 10 plus. Like it would still allow you for the guts of five, I suppose goalkeepers next year who would start as 4.5 and you wouldn't really expect to have many more options uh, in that bracket like the fact of the matter is is that Martinez wouldn't necessarily have been a 5.0 option or a 4.5 option at the start of this season had he not started the season in FPL at Arsenal and then found his way to Aston Villa before the season started meaning that we had this brilliant option there 
yeah, the only other one to give a shout out to is Edison, um, who managed to kind of come second um, to Martinez, which is respectable for him. I think he's kept up his kind of record. And I've mentioned this several times on preseason pods. He's got this ridiculous record where he'll keep a clean sheet approximately half of the games per season. And this year, 19 clean sheets, 50%. Right? Some parties, I think, is about 45%. Um, and obviously, you know, burnished that um, end of season 160 with a penalty save against the Everton on the last day, saving from Siggy. 160 points uh, for him. He had scored all of the Man City defenders. So we would talk about the idea that getting Edison is a waste of a slot because they have all these defenders who are so attacking and things. They rotated so heavily this year that Ederson ended up outscoring all the defenders. So we would talk about usually you should try and get the player that's attacking your Cancelos or whatever. I think next year it will become much more logical based on that to have that elite keeper in your defense starting off because City are going to be able to compete on all four slash five fronts next year. Their squad is only going to get deeper and stronger. And in the end, Ederson is probably going to be the most consistent route to getting those clean sheets every second game. Yeah, and like of all of all positions, Pep's going to be being too deep. But goalkeeper, really? Is that going to be the one sort of, you know, blind spot almost where he's not going to be doubling up? He's just not going to be buying in. A Ter Stegen type character. It's yeah, just not going to happen. Yeah. Like he could, or even picking up like an Areola type character. Yeah, it's just not going to happen, is it? I don't think. It seems like they're working on Stefan you know, moulding him into the type of goalkeeper they want. They also have, of course, Tom, Republic of Ireland International, Gavin Bizzunu on their books. He's out on loan at the moment, but he is oh, really? um, a phenom of a young goalkeeper. He is a, a cap for Ireland already, and he's uh, something else. And I wouldn't be surprised if they would quite happily sit him in as the number two slash number three behind Stefan and just move forward. But yeah, Edison probably will, you would expect, not be rotating in that sort. We're not going to have a De Gea Henderson type situation <laughs> yeah. for him. Interesting to see how Bazulu and Quavin Kelleher um, do against each other. And Mark right. Travers. We have three Mark goalkeepers Travers, that you might him, have heard yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a classic Republic of Ireland stuff where you've, you've kind of mounted up in the, the positions where no one really gives it. And it's yeah. got into fullbacks and we have goalkeepers. <laughs> yeah, the positions where you need players, you've just 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 got dross. Right. Yeah, anyway, let's that. move on to the defenders. Um, and speaking of people from the island of Ireland, and um, despite not actually being Irish, Irish, um, the defender of the year, I think actually here is again a bit of a standout. And I think also he kind of grabs the surprise of the season, the budget player of the season. I think it is probably Stuart Dallas. Um, I'm going to let you wax lyrical about him, Anthony, except to say from uh, looking at the past data, he, with his eight goals, is actually the highest scoring in terms of goals scored defender from the last five years. You're looking back to Leighton Baines for a defender who scored more goals um, in a single season. So for context, Alonso in 2017-18 managed seven. Uh, Cahill and Alonso managed six in 2016-17. One of the things with Stuart Dallas was the fact that he hauled, didn't he, against teams you'd probably not play him in. Yeah, and, and this was part of the problem with Dallas. And I, I mentioned earlier in the pod that I, I owned him for, you know, the first 34, 33 game weeks of the season and still managed to bench him for about half of his decent hauls and even sold him because there were some tough fixtures for Leeds coming up, such as playing against Man City, where he went on to absolutely haul as well, obviously more famously, I guess, with a brace in that particular game. Just, I guess, he was like what we saw last year with John Lundstrom, but 
five, 0.5 more and so much better and so much more convincing from a footballing perspective and so much more convincing and so much more consistent from an FPL perspective. Eight goals, three assists, all of it probably pretty much because he was playing in midfield, out of position, but still getting all of those sweet, sweet clean sheet points, 12 of them in the process fired him to the top of the defence rankings. Uh, there were some people who thought it would be ailing. There were others who thought that Dallas would be dropped and he wasn't good enough. But no, the as he's affectionately known, the Cookstown... again here, Anthony. Yeah, the, as he's affectionately uh. known, the Cookstown Cafu found his way to the top. Uh, you know, the likes of the other players that you could be nominating for this defensive slot. Is it one of the City guys who didn't necessarily play the day that you wanted them? Diaz. Stones, you know, sure he got a 21-pointer and sure he got a 14-pointer. Cancelo, sure he got a 17-pointer. But they weren't there when you needed them all the time. That can't possibly be your defender of the year. The Chelsea surge, the likes of Rudiger, the likes of Chilwell. Yeah, sure, they were fine. But you couldn't possibly nominate them as defender of the year when they also weren't there when you needed them. But there was Dallas, always there, where you didn't expect him to be in midfield in preseason. Just dominating week in, week out. What a guy what you were saying there as well like you know the football writer player of the year you know like a lot of the player of the year sort of stakes were all about Diaz I think that Dallas not really being in that conversation clearly like denotes the difference the divergence between FPL and football and it, like you know we had a year basically where we had basically Lundstram plus in Dallas, and I think that got hugely overlooked. And maybe it was because obviously Dallas started at 4.5, whereas Lundstrom started at 4.0, and it was a clear sort of miss um, classification um, where Lundstrom was concerned, whereas Dallas, it was kind of iffy. It was iffy. Um, but like, I think that those factors conspired to mean that Dallas, as a gift to FPL managers, just didn't really emerge as a thing until quite late on. Um, so it, I mean, he can count someone lucky, but I think at the same time, there'll be loads of managers who have got a warm, fuzzy feeling when they look at the Cookstown Cafu in future years. Um, just look at a few other players as well. Um, I was shocked to see that Robertson outscored Trent by one point. I, I thought that was amazing. Because if you look at the data, Trent was still leading the way in terms of chance creation amongst defenders of 88, XA this year, 8.92, and big chances created. But the one Anthony I want to give a big shout out to is uh, Cresswell, uh, the prime casual pick, I think. I mean, he was legit a secret weapon in so many mini leagues for so many. And he was just completely forgotten about. I didn't really mention him um, in my kind of bandwagons uh, piece earlier on. But out of nowhere, he finished fourth for defenders this year. And it was prim- primarily on set-piece deliveries. 11 assists from next day of just 6.67. Testament to the fact that he had you know, the likes of, you know, Suchek and Dawson, huge lumps to aim at. When he got injured in game week 31, he was the highest scoring defender. Um, and he was outscoring the likes of Diaz then. Just mad stuff. Um, and 11 assists, as I mentioned earlier on this season. That's the fourth highest tally for defenders. Uh, so Trent got 15 last year, 13 the year before, when Robbo also got 12 over the last five years. So yeah, a bit of an understated hero there in Cresswell. And perhaps a bit unlucky to get an injury because I think he, he again would probably be getting a bit more sort of... Um, praise if he didn't get injured in game week first and was able to kind of keep it up for the whole season but out of nowhere uh, the Scouse East Ender uh, was able to find his way um, into the books here It's Cresswell Scouse that's news to me <laughs> that was the biggest bit of news there in that whole entire segment that yeah Cresswell 
throughout the season was brilliant. And I think that he was a key part, obviously, of that West Ham side, but a consistent part of it. You actually, you might, we might not have noted Crespo in the bandwagons earlier, but that's because he wasn't a bandwagon. He was consistent. Sure, in attack, West Ham had their bandwagons. There was the Sutek era. There was the Lingard era. There was the Antonio era. And they didn't really overlap. But Cresswell was the one providing for all of them all the way through. And to a lesser extent, Soufal was uh, providing quite a few assists as well, but just not quite on the scale that, uh, that Cresswell was able to do it. And so, you know, even Soufal is kind of going to be overlooked. Even the fact that he got nine assists this year is remarkable in and of itself. As you say, if Cresswell hadn't been injured and had more points than Dallas, I think we might have seen Cresswell being our defender of the year. But for me, at least, I think and this is, as you say, Tom, a very FPL-centric point because Dallas should never have been a defender in the first place. Dallas still stands out above Cresswell for me as the defender of the year. And I, I yeah. really can't be shifted on that, especially no, because no, Dallas I, I, is I, going I'm... to be like a 6.5 or 7 midfielder next year what? and we're never going to own him again. Yeah, I, I I can imagine being about a six. Fair enough. I, 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 maybe if it was like a true defender of the year, I'd be kind of saying, yeah, Cresswell is worth it. But I mean, you you can't account for FPL making mistakes in terms of Dallas. And I don't think, to be fair, they could have accounted for the fact Dallas was very versatile and ended up basically being a key cog in the middle of that Leeds machine. Right, moving on to uh, midfielders. Bruno? Isn't it surely 244 really? points, the fourth highest score for midfielders over the last five years? So, Salah in 2018 with that 303 point heroics. Um, Sanchez, uh, second highest score in the last five years, for midfielders with 264 into 1617. And Kevin De Bruyne, 251 last season. So, I mean, Anthony, is it Bruno who just gets it by default? I think being realistic about this. I feel like you have to give midfielder of the year to Bruno Fernandes. And I think as much of that is just because he actually managed to follow through on the hype. You know, last year, he obviously came into the league and was immediately transformative for Manchester United and was obviously immediately transformative within FPL as well, going all the way through the pre-COVID period and then project restart as well. And he came into this season hilariously actually under the radar because Man United had a blank game week one and just fired and fired and fired, especially he kept up that record of being absolutely fantastic away from home and always getting a return for months. He kept it going and he really made a mockery of a 10.5 million price tag at the start of this season too, uh, in getting like, as you say, right to the top of the FPL rankings. And he got, you know, a good, good return in terms of goals, 18. Yes. Supplemented by penalties, but you know, an awful lot of that came from open play as well. 14 assists actually could have been an awful lot more if United had kind of worked out their striker thing a little bit earlier. But part of that is the fact that Cavani took an awful long time to settle and just be able to get into the team consistently. Part of it is the fact that the likes of Greenwood and Rashford weren't as clinical as you would have hoped for them to be. Like That's really the difference between uh, Fernandez's season being much higher in terms of goal or points this year like he could easily have had a 270 280 point season if more of his if basically if he just picked up a few more assists uh, it would have kind of changed the complexion of his season even more so again and kind of put it into that you know top 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 bracket so individually he did it for a team he did it for FPL he met expectations and probably exceeded them along the way he made a mockery of a high price tag and will probably be the most expensive player alongside Salah in the game 
come next season. And it's hard to overlook the fact that he was able to, as I say, for the third time, meet that hype. Beyond yeah. that, you're, you're starting to look to the, you know, the budget players who stole our hearts and overperformed expectations. Yeah. But at the same time, it's hard to make an argument for them ahead of Bruno. Yeah, I mean, Bruno, 10.5 at the start of the season. Don't forget that he was a discount on a premium player. And it just made a mockery of that, as you said. Obviously, you've got Salah um, getting to the 200 club fourth year in a row. Um, his his XG being over 21 for the third year in a row is simply astonishing, uh, frankly. It just kind of underpins what an essential, with a capital E, FPL asset he is. Although next year, obviously, he may be away at the Olympics of Egypt, so it may be a very, very different case. Um, but I think Bruno kind of, uh, as Anthony said, bringing himself up to a level of midfielder alongside Salah means that it's an easy sort of uh, allocation to him. Uh, an honourable mention, I think, to Hong Min Son. Um, 228 points this year, 17 goals, 11 assists. Um, it's actually the second year in a row he's got double digits. And so last year he got 11 goals and 13 assists. And I think this year has been his best year ever. Oh, definitely has been the best year ever because he's breached 200 club. Um, so that's one which is meritable. Um, and I think that, you know, God knows what's going to happen with Spurs over the summer and God knows whether he'll be here next year. Um, but he's one um, who definitely had that sort of magnum opus, um, especially, you know, fueled by that things like that 24 point haul versus Southampton in game week two and that 18 point haul versus Man Nice in game week four. And there are a few others who you know did coruscate flash intermittently <laughs> with the likes of uh, Gundawan and Pereira as a, I think we've mentioned both of them haven't we during the course of this podcast. You could you toss in an entertainer like Rafinha into that as well as just a player that we we all love to yeah. own and we all love to watch while we own them. But at the same time, like you couldn't possibly make an argument for them to be your uh, midfielder. Yeah, yeah, Lingard totally fits into that kind of category as well. I think if you were talking about midfielder, we didn't notice being good of the year. It would have to be Harrison. <laughs> just like I, I, I still yeah. can't get over the idea that a player managed to get as many points as he did, 160 points. A player managed to get almost into double figures for both goals and assists. He got eight goals and 10 assists. And yet, I don't yes. think we ever discussed Stealth him. pick of the year, almost, but, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not an award we thought we were going to be giving out. And maybe we won't be able to give it out at the gala dinner because like, we wouldn't even know if he was on the stage collecting the award. <laughs> but <laughs> this year, while we're able to give out awards, safe from the knowledge that they aren't behind us, the Stealth Award goes to Jack Harrison. Yeah. The cloaking device uh, operative award. Right. And the final thing from uh, position lead before we move on any further is striker of the year. Um, so obviously this goes to Kane, but for me, this also goes to season of player of the year for Kane. So I'm not going to sing Kane's praises here. Um, what I'm going to do instead actually is nominate Patrick Bamford. Um, so 17 goals and five assists, 194 points. There has never, from my uh, looks um, from both the last five years, but I've got complete data sets for, and also over the last 10 years, there's never been a player promoted to the Premier League who's produced to such a mad extent. The value of the player is absolutely outstanding. And I think that obviously this is a big learning for the likes of Nick and I, who we both kind of, you know, we both kind of were saying, you know, oh, he's doing a paddy, you know, there's no way he's going to do things in the 5.5 preseason, um, you know, it was a fallow, fallow position as well. It did look like the likes of you know Dominic Calvert-Lewin um, could have made it. There were points as well when Varney could have made it, but inconsistency here has been a total killer. Uh, but Bamford, throughout the year, has either delighted or disappointed. There have been 
points where he's, you know, smashed it with double-digit hauls, met with the next week where Bielsa's pulled him off after 56 minutes. Um, but overall, I think for 5.5 million, 194 points, the value is just absolutely obscene. Um, Kane, I'm going to wax lyrical about him in a little bit. Um, and Anthony, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably, you, you might um, do the same, but you know, striker of the year. It's so interesting and... to me that you said it's obviously Kane. No, the striker of the year award is not which striker got the most points award for me. It's definitely kind of about value. It's about meeting and overperforming expectations. And whilst Kane obviously you know, Kane obviously has high expectations. He's won the Golden Boot in the past. He's a player that we have seen go well beyond the 20 goals in a season threshold before. Uh, getting 29 twice. We've never seen him get as many assists, obviously, as he did this year with 14, which meant that he provided, you know, had another string to his FPL bow that he never had before, leading to him getting his highest FPL points total than we've ever seen before, 242. The highest before that was 224. And even that was years ago. But that's not of interest to me. It's it's Bamford. It's got to be Bamford who's the forward of the year. Yeah. We never thought that this was coming. We we oh, couldn't yeah, exactly. possibly have seen. We didn't think we didn't think he'd get to ten goals. And if he did get to ten goals, we would have thought it was just you know a few kind of things yeah, that hit off his arse along stuff, the way. Like Chris Wood esque kind of like oh yeah, well you know he happens. Chris Wood makes it dependably <laughs> to ten goals every season. It just happens. It's it's a bit Jack Harrison esque in the way he silently does it, but. In the sense of Patrick Bamford, no, it was convincing. It was brilliant. There was a hat trick in there that was like absolutely phenomenal when he did it. He had a, a, quite a few double figure hauls. This was not a fluke whatsoever. And it's the surprise. It's the fact that he had a player there as well who was pushing him for his place this season and he held his place. I think he really stands out and he had to have been the forward of the year for me. You could have talked about, you mentioned Calvert Lewin. You could even have mentioned that the, the uh, so called talentless. Watkins but I think really Bamford just stands head and shoulders above as you say head and shoulders above yeah. any promoted player we've ever seen and for that reason I think he has to be the forward of the year and the player that I should have owned of the year as well it really came down to Kane versus Bamford and like we'll speak about it in terms of the player of the season nominee um that you're not too keen on Kane um but um, yeah, I think Bamford, I'm, yeah, I'm behind giving him that, to be honest. Um, in terms of value, it's just outstanding. Um, flop of the season, uh, the penultimate awards. I think that this is probably, for me, um, I'm not sure if you've got, Anthony, some other nominees here, uh, but I've got two here, Aubameyang or Sterling. Those, those are the two that came to mind straight away. And I think it's going to have to be Aubameyang for me. Two years with 200 plus points, 205 points on the nose, actually. And those 200 points as a forward. As a so forward, we thought, yeah. my word, this is it. He's yeah, going to return. <laughs> 230 points we were expecting. Um, you know, 131 this year. And some podcasts, Adam Pritchard said uh, not very long ago, said Tasman Theory points to this guy. But it's almost like the, the drop-off is very difficult to legislate for. And I know that sounds like I'm, you know, making excuses but over last year if you just look at you know year-on-year data in terms of shots in the box he's that's gone down by a third in terms of shots on target that's more than halved more than half um in terms of shots in general you know you're, you're basically looking at basically nearly half of those and for whatever reason like it's not entirely his fault it's not like he's just gone yeah screw it i give up but Arteta has this year decided to throw him out on the wing with the Sane when Pep Naughty steps in instruction to just stay on the wing. 
provide width. And it is horrific, frankly, the drop-off there. I think kind of events conspired to make Aubameyang just look an absolute waste of money, an absolute waste of time. Like I, I, I can't believe that we've seen a player who last season we we all kind of either had an EO sort of fear about um, a player that we were all kind of, you know, throughout the last kind of throughout the course of the season looking to maybe bring in when the fixtures were good. From that, become a complete non-entity. I think Aubameyang's kind of got there, but Sterling's done the same too. So it's it's actually really close between the two. And Sterling's actually let me down personally a lot more than Aubameyang, but like this isn't my personal season review. It's kind of like an objective review of things. So I think it's got to be Aubameyang for me in terms of the top of the season and for me. What about you? Interesting. So yeah, I had obviously identified Aubameyang and I think part of that is the fact that in pre-season, you, me, Nick, we all talked about how we thought he was going to be this essential player. We had him in our squads for game week one because Arsenal had a few good fixtures and it was conceivable in our heads that he may never leave our teams again, that he was just such good value and he had everything going for him. And he obviously only got 10 goals and three assists. That was 74 points less than he had last season, which is one hell of a drop-off. But it's not the biggest. The biggest was Kevin De Bruyne, 110 points down. Oh, that would get interesting territory because uh, we, uh, well, we'll talk about this in, in terms of the summer of summer time reveals, but we've had so many people saying he's the best asset in the game. This is it's it. not quite happened, has it, for KDB? But I think in terms of like underlying ability and underlying potential, I do think he should be the best asset in the game. But six goals, 12 assists, not even consistently playing anymore, vastly underperforming XG, that's not good. And I think that that means that, and the amount of disappointment, like I think people would have got rid of Aubameyang because they could have looked at that Arsenal team and been like, yeah. they are terrible. Whereas, you know, they were, you were looking at William and you were like, what have they done? <laughs> Whereas you looked at that City team and whilst their results earlier in the year were disappointing and they didn't exactly take off like a freight train, at the same time, you could see everything was kind of slowly knitting together and it was oh. just a matter of time. And De Bruyne almost seemed to every week find himself one-on-one with the goalkeeper only to hit it into their face oh. or their thigh or their arm, anywhere but the goal, basically. I think that's one of those things to keep uh, for one of the off-season podcasts with the analytics crew because yep. it's one of those things where you know it's where the eye test is key. Yep. Uh, a friend of ours, but also FPL, always says you know he he didn't, he stops investing in De Bruyne fairly kind of uh, in the middle middle of the season after watching him do that exact same thing where you know the XG was great you know he was obviously doing that and there were those people in the community vaunting him as you know an elite finisher. Actually, no. If you watch him play and you have an integrative approach to FPL data, no. Yeah, and maybe just to kind of round out that flop of the season, I think I'm still agreeing with you on Aubameyang, but I would give it as a joint prize with De Bruyne. Sterling would have to fall into it, but he dropped off 50 points, wasn't the player we expected him to be, had potentially actually a really good opportunity there, and it's out of his hands, he doesn't select the team, to take over the forward role from Aguero and Jesus when they were both either injured or not performing and didn't take it, and that is disappointing. And we thought he'd be potentially a 200-club player for you know multiple yeah. years in a row, and it didn't turn out that way. One other nominee, but eventually not going to be the winner of flop of the season because actually he kind of pulled it together in the last few weeks and just nailed a few points, especially for you, Tom, uh, right when he needed to, is Trent Alexander-Arnold. 
Oh. He had four goals, 15 assists and 14 clean sheets last year. He only got two goals, eight assists and 10 clean sheets this year. He dropped off 50 points in total. It was disappointing. It was bad at times. He fell out of the England squad. It was so bad at times. He's brought it back together. He is an incredibly talented player and he is going to be one for the future. He may well end up as a midfielder and a bloody good midfielder at that. But this season was a really, really tough one for him. And from an FPL perspective, it was disappointing. But part of that is obviously down to a systemic thing that Liverpool had so many injuries and how could you expect that to happen? Yeah. And yet he still only had four clean sheets less than the season before. He actually had more bonus points this year than he had uh, the season before when Liverpool ran out as title winners. So there's an, you know, there's an awful lot of underlying things about him. Uh, his Obviously his chance creation stats were so good too. There's an awful lot of underlying data there to suggest that Trent will become the elite 200 club-ish defender that we know he can be. It's it just didn't happen for him this year. The last couple of years, yes. you get there. Um, yeah. yeah no, fair enough. Good shout. All right, so player of the season, Anthony. Um, for me, it's Kane. Um, I know he wasn't there for you and uh, you weren't too sure about him. Uh, but for me, it's like he's back. Uh, maybe for me as a longer term sort of uh, uh, podcaster in some ways. I've, I just remember how we started the season at 10.5 and he was seen as a bit of a busted flush, you know, Harry Kante. And from there, he's emerged as a must-own FPL asset for next season, depending where he ends up. And getting into double figures, um, winning the golden boot and golden assist is just unbelievable, frankly. Um, the second you know, best goal involvement output with 23 goals and 14 assists uh, this season, um, only beaten by Salah in the 2017-18 season, you know, the 303-point season uh, where he got first two goals and 12 assists. Um I think that the turnaround for Kane has been huge. And I think that over, over like, you know, the course of a season, you forget kind of the initial sort of conceptions of players and that sort of received conception of players. And Kane, like the fact that that has swung so hard, um, but there's like that kind of past repertoire of things to draw upon that you can draw a line to with Kane just goes to show um, that there was always this sort of FPL asset in there. And of course there always was with Kane. Um, Kane was always that one of those, one of those, um, one of those individuals who um, was in um, uh, many a top kind of team. There were a couple of years in the wilderness though, 2019, 20, 2018, 19, both times didn't get into 200 club. But between 2014-15, when he got 191, and 2017-18, when he got 217, his returns were always between 190 and 225. Um, and he has been a mainstay of FPL in the past. And if he goes to Man City, Anthony, surely he, he next year will continue to do that. And it was kind of like a reassertion almost of a player who had lost his way a little bit, become you know the, the key DM and had now become, again, a must-own FPL asset. So the redemption sort of story uh, makes me think Kane was the one to bring in, as well as kind of empirically the double-figure um, return, um, which led to those kind of double um, individual trophies for this year. Um, but I know for you, it's a cut-price player who's done his best. Yeah, whilst I agree with all of those points about Kane, and I actually think that he is closer to being my player of the season than he was to being my forward of the season because I'm kind of taking slightly different criteria to those like I don't feel like you need to have won one of the positional awards to have qualified to qualify um for the overall award and so with that, with that in mind with that in mind I think he would probably be second but second to Stuart Dallas who did of course win my defender of the year award and our defender of the year award 
it's just the value, Tom. It's just so simple. All the returns that he was able to provide yeah, over this enough. year for a promoted side, as we went through it before, so we can just you know quickly wrap it that eight goals, three assists, 12 clean sheets, playing out of position, starting at 4.5, doing it exactly when you didn't expect them to do it for a side that was obviously promoted, that was so entertaining to watch as well. And that is a factor for sure in this for me as well, was that it was just so good to watch them and that lead side just do as well as it was. And so he was obviously the surprise of the season of the two. You know, you can forget your Suchek's or whatever who were so impressive. He was just (laughs) out of nowhere. We had this player who just really, really kind of just, I actually can kind of rattled what more my, my expectations from promoted players? Like I thought that you know the likes of the thing, what we saw from maybe your team of Pookies was maybe as good as it might get for a promoted player. Uh, and Patrick Bamford defied expectations as well. But for a defender, uh, well, as nominated as a defender <laughs> in FPL to do what Dallas did, to get to 171 points. Like if if Leeds' defense had been even as good as it was from like, let's say game week 10 slash 14 onwards, he would have been a 200 club player. Like there were just an awful lot of clean sheets left on the wayside there when Leeds' defense was poor that could quite easily have been there in another, you know, on another day or if things were just slightly different or if a squad yeah. basically full of championship players had managed to kind of get used to the Premier League a little bit earlier. Didn't quite happen that way, but he's still my player this season. He feels like the ultimate set and forget player in any season. Um, given the fact he was out of position, given the fact that he was such a budget value pick, and given the fact that you know he was able to return in terms of goals scored and in terms of assists as well. So yeah, no, I, I completely am behind that. Um, I'm still vaguely on Kane, but you know I could be swayed by that. Well, I think that brings us towards the end. The only other thing to mention is the summer plan. Um, so I'm not going completely quiet, as Anthony said uh, at the start of the podcast. Um, we're going to be doing three long-form pods over the summer just to kind of indulge a little bit into some sort of key themes which govern FPL. This isn't kind of saying, let's pick this guy, he's going to score those points. It's more about looking at kind of things which impacts the FPL sort of um, discourse narrative. And we're doing this with a few uh, guests that we're really, really happy have agreed to come on. Um, so these three long form pods are going to be one, uh, FPL and behavioral science uh, with Ross, FPL Raptor, um, who's gained a lot of kind of um, uh, popularity in the FPL community this year. And Simon March, the former winner who we've had on a couple of times, who's obviously a really insightful kind of guest who's obviously a really insightful guest and obviously has now got um, uh, the same as Ross um, uh, academic uh, accreditation in this area. The second thing we're going to do is FPL and stats uh, with the guys from the Corridor of Uncertainty pod who are We Rogue and FPL Analytic. I suspect, Anthony, we're going to end up being um, the devil's advocates there, just kind of saying, well, the eye test actually is quite useful, lads, and they'll be kind of throwing up in their respective pints. But um, yeah, I think that'd be really interesting to do. And finally, FPL and Fandon uh, with good friends of the pod and avid fans of their respective clubs, uh, Lucy Heiner and Adam Pritchard. Uh, really looking forward to that as well. So three kind of podcasts that um, I think will kind of look at negotiation between fantasy football and their kind of respective areas and give you all at least uh, an insight into how FPL can interact with all sorts of different sort of disciplines and create this kind of interesting um, sort of spaces. Um, we're also doing our usual preseason stuff, Anthony, but 
I guess maybe we'll retire the unwritten rules pod due to time. We'll see. Um, but nonetheless, we're off to enjoy the Euros now. Um, sorry, Anthony. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a really good season. Um, thank you very much if you have listened. Um, it's been great uh, to do the pods this year, despite the fact that I've been up um, doing the Thursday podcast more times than I want to, um, doing a 3 p.m., a 3 a.m. bedtime and a 9 a.m. wake up. But it is what it is. It's labor of love. It's all free. It's all for you guys. And I really, really hope you've enjoyed what we've done. Uh, I'm very proud of how we've got the podcast out of the season and we've kept the standard of quality up um, and I think that that's kind of down to you Anthony um, and also down to Nick too yeah it's, no, it's been an absolutely brilliant season Tom and thanks very much it's been great to be part of the pod for a full season this year and I've really enjoyed it I hope the listeners have enjoyed listening to us throughout it and we were who got the assist. Thank you so much for listening today. Thanks for so much for listening for the season. If you haven't subscribed and you find yourself listening, of all things, to a Game Week 38 pod as your first for the first time to listen to this pod, then hit subscribe. We'll be back in the summer, as Tom said. We have a correspondence section, as you all know. It wasn't in this pod, but it'll be back next season. Who got the assist at gmail.com with your emails, presumably about the fixtures or about the coming season or yeah, something yeah, i don't yeah. know what those questions future, are going to be about gazing <laughs> yeah exactly yeah uh, get out your crystal balls or uh whatever it is you use to look into the future and uh, develop questions over a barbecue and send on the emails to as i said who got the assist at gmail.com in the meantime look forward to seeing you guys for those long form pods on qual quant puns and goats it'll be, it'll be great to have <laughs> you all there for those but uh until then thanks yeah, thanks for listening. We hope this assists you genuinely this season. Don't forget about the 24th of July meetup in London if you can make it and um, do what you can. Uh, I hope to see you there. But if not, speak to you at some point in July and definitely when the game reopens in a couple of months. Ciao for now. Ciao. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Podcast Network.